Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host, Navem, and welcome to another hour of Alternative Viewpoints. The Ukraine crisis, which stems from 2014, has now been transformed into a full-scale military conflict. On 24th February 2022, Russian forces launched an armed offensive in Ukraine, which President Vladimir Putin described as a special military operation to eliminate what he called a serious threat, primarily to demilitarize and denazify Russia's southern neighbor. Conversely, the United Nations considers this attack to be a violation of the territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine, stating it to be contrary to the principles of the Charter of the United Nations. In an early morning address on February 24th, using state television, President Putin said he had been left with no choice but to launch the operation, the scope of which was not immediately clear, but appeared to go well beyond helping Russian-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine. And when analysing these events, it's important to understand the highly complex dynamics involved which have led to military confrontation between Russian and Ukrainian forces, creating a major flashpoint reminiscent of Cold War politics during the post-war period. This nuanced situation in modern international relationships is the result of interactions between various actors involved in this real-life tragedy, from NATO-led Western powers to state aggression between Ukraine and Russia, and also extending to the various representatives of nationalist separatism from the Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics, both located in the historical Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. Indeed, the Ukraine crisis, which has often been oversimplified by Western mainstream media as an ideological battle between democracy and autocracy, or aggression and counter-aggression, is far from being a binary issue, or indeed the sole source of conflict between NATO and Russia. Because since the end of the Cold War in 1991, which was marked by the fall of the Berlin Wall, this period was hailed as the beginning of a new reunification of Europe. The last president of the previous USSR, Mikhail Gorbachev, often spoke in terms of a common European home, which was a belief that European international politics could be transformed in order to create a genuine post-Cold War settlement of indivisible and mutual security based on the joint interests of common European destiny. Although deemed by many commentators as a romanticized idea, it was later revived by President Putin in the form of the idea of Greater Europe, referring to a classical concept pursued by former French presidents Charles de Gaulle and François Mitterrand. This entailed a European political community stretching from Lisbon to Vladivostok. However, from the very beginning, the transformative idea of Greater Europe was countered by the restraints placed by US hegemony in Europe or the notion of Europe as the hegemonic backyard of the United States. This sphere of influence of the United States has intrinsically represented a major obstacle to the idea of a Europe whole and free because its fundamental dynamic has been the enlargement of the existing Western European order since 1991 to encompass the rest of the continent. This program of enlargement aimed at vastly expanding the current Atlantic system initially maintained a disguised intent during the 1990s, but eventually the enlargement agenda proved unacceptable to Moscow. And while the United States continues to argue in favor of transformation through defense, its main efforts are now devoted to creating a new form of greater Eurasia, which directly challenges Russia's borders. Moreover, there remains a fundamental tension between the Atlanticist and pan-continental versions of the post-Cold War international order throughout this region. 
This tension gave rise to conflict and war in 2008 during the Russo-Georgian War and again from 2014 to the present crisis in Ukraine. Many academics and commentators have referred to this as a second Cold War leading to a divided continent. Although the concepts of pan-continentalism and a greater Eurasia still thrive and are actively vying for supremacy through their regional factions, the idea of a greater European continentalism certainly appears to be fading away in light of current events and represents nothing more than a lost dream rather than a genuine possibility. Clearly, the Ukraine crisis has now become a global tragedy and humanitarian catastrophe amid a heightened world economic crisis affecting supply chains across the globe. But history teaches us that war is a truly vulgar and unrighteous business, where crimes against humanity are committed on both sides, as evidenced by the thousands of people that have already been killed in Ukraine, the displacement of hundreds of thousands of refugees, and emerging accounts of human outrage. Also, despite ongoing attempts at a negotiated settlement, this crisis will alter the future of Ukraine, Europe, and most probably create a new international order based on Eurasian lines which will affect global geopolitics for decades to come. So how do we understand the armed conflict in eastern Ukraine and what are its implications for Ukraine's future as an independent nation, as well as for geopolitical stability in the region? Various sides of the media, policymakers and political analysts have used several competing narratives to explain the armed conflict in eastern Ukraine. And I will briefly mention three competing narratives which help to explain this ongoing conflict before introducing the main body of today's episode. And I should also point out that the three arguments presented are by no means exhaustive and will be used as a basic context going forward. So let's look at the first narrative, which focuses on the domestic causes of the conflict. This explanation is largely advocated by Russian state media, Russian policymakers, and certain scholars of international relations. The Russian media have described the events in late 2013 to 2014 as a coup, executed by extreme neo-fascist groups and various nationalist militias, which employed intimidation and terror methods to oust the legitimately elected president, Viktor Yanukovych, thus leading to a breakdown of democracy in Ukraine. President Putin has also firmly placed the blame on neo-Nazi extremists in Kiev that were backed by the US government. The second narrative focuses on the role of Russia in the conflict, more specifically the role of external actors, suggesting that the armed conflict in Ukraine is a result of a covert Russian campaign precipitated by the annexation of Crimea in 2014. This narrative is prominent among Western policymakers who have denounced the Russian incursion in Crimea and eastern Ukraine as an attempt by President Putin to undermine and destabilize Ukraine's government. The long-term aim being a reconquering of previous Russian spheres of influence and ultimately paving the way for a new Tsarist-style Russian empire. And according to this view, President Putin considers Ukraine and its people as merely an indivisible part of the Russian Empire rather than a separate sovereign nation. And the third narrative describes the conflict as a result of continuous Western policies of interference led by US hegemonic values. This third narrative is largely a minority view advocated by certain Western scholars such as the late eminent scholar Stephen Cohen and Professor John Mearsheimer. According to this view, most of the responsibility for U Ukraine's crisis lies with the West, particularly the United States, the EU and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization or NATO. The real source of the crisis, according to this view, originates in the 1990s with the original expansion of NATO and the European Union and the integration of the Baltic states into Euro-Atlantic institutions. These projects of the Western powers sought to undermine Russian influence in the post-Soviet era by 
challenging Russia's strategic, economic, political and security interests. And according to Professor John Mearsheimer, the overthrow of Viktor Yanukovych, the democratically elected president of Ukraine, through a violent coup d'etat, was the final straw for President Putin, who sees the West constantly interfering into Russia's unique sphere of influence. In particular, Mearsheimer blames the European Union for launching its Eastern Partnership initiatives to integrate post-communist economies into the EU, and the United States for promoting democratic values and institutions in post-Soviet countries, thereby posing a threat to Russia and ultimately the legitimacy of Vladimir Putin's rule. Now, to elucidate each of these narratives is beyond the scope of this episode, but a useful starting point is to establish a common denominator of events, which hopefully all sides would agree upon. So let's begin by asking, how did the crisis begin? Well, the Crimean Peninsula became the first flashpoint of the Ukraine crisis in 2014, partly due to its ethnic, cultural and linguistic ties to Russia but especially because of its strategic value via its access to the Black Sea. Although the crisis initially began over whether the Ukrainian government should sign an economic deal with the EU or with Russia, NATO's role in the crisis is more significant than the European Union's. Because while the European Union is a legitimate economic competitor to Russia, especially if Ukraine were to join, NATO, on the other hand, is a military alliance which has been Russia's adversary since its very conception in 1949. Also, it's important to remember that the EU has no army of its own and a poor track record on taking effective military action. Therefore, Russia has real tactical and strategic reasons to fear NATO encroachment into its sphere of influence. Quite simply, a NATO-aligned Ukraine would expand this hostile military threat and bring it to one of Russia's most important borders. So let's briefly examine the sequence of political events leading to the Ukraine crisis in 2014 and beyond. Firstly, in 2004, electoral fraud led to the election of pro-Russian candidate Viktor Yanukovych. Ukraine was then swept up in a nationwide peaceful protest against government corruption, which later became known as the Orange Revolution. And as a result of this, it was successful in bringing to power the more progressive pro-Western candidate, Viktor Yushchenko. The latter had run on a platform that favoured Ukrainian membership in NATO. However, despite high hopes from the electorate, Yushchenko was not proactive and accomplished very little. He failed to successfully bring Ukraine closer to NATO or EU membership. And two years later, his opponent, Viktor Yanukovych, was elected, putting an end to these political ambitions. And following the collapse of Yushchenko's Orange Coalition, Ukraine's relations with NATO emerged as a particularly contentious issue. This is because the country is heavily divided along regional lines in relation to Ukraine forming closer ties with either the West or with Russia. And these divisions soon led to another political uprising in 2014, during Viktor Yanukovych's second term, another movement, Euromaidan, took root. But this was minority-led and violence soon erupted. The stability was heightened as Pro-Russian President Viktor Yanukovych was forced to flee the country, sparking off a series of events centered around Crimea and eastern Ukraine, which have negatively impacted relations between Russia and the West ever since. The Crimean Peninsula was always going to be a point of contention, given Russia's historical claims on Crimea and the fact that the majority of Crimea's population is actually composed of ethnic Russians. Following the overthrow of Viktor Yanukovych and the introduction of anti-Russian language laws, Russia subsequently annexed the Crimean Peninsula, originally transferred to Ukraine by former Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev in 1954. And this inevitably created an uproar in the international community because it was thought that Russia had violated 
Ukraine's territorial integrity and norms of non-intervention and sovereignty. So having introduced a brief overview to the precipitating events of 2013 to 14, let's continue with the main focus of today's episode, which is to examine the underlying causes of the current crisis in Ukraine. And firstly, a point of interest, Ukraine is actually the second largest state in Eastern Europe after Russia. It's the largest country located entirely in Europe, and yet it represents a state constantly at odds with itself. Indeed, it is a nation split between East and West, representing a microcosm of the post-Soviet world. In addition, it is a nation replete with the hallmarks of oligarchy and the festering corruption of Boris Yeltsin's mid-1990s Russia, compounded by its dependence on Russian imports. And yet it also possesses a clear independent streak and refusal to be seen as just another Russia, similar to other countries such as Belarus. It also adopts a more liberal democratic stance, similar to the West, compared to other former Soviet states, and a population willing to fight for their own version of democracy and independence from Russia. Ukraine in its present form is a relatively young state, established as a Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in 1919, but it has been plagued with conflicting internal divisions ever since. And these come in the form of cultural, linguistic, regional and ethnic divisions. And it can be argued that they are partly responsible for the country's struggling or failing democracy. In the aftermath of the Soviet Union's collapse, the Western area of Ukraine used nationalistic pride and pro-West tendencies to rebel against their former socialist overlords, whereas in the Eastern Crimea, which belonged to Russia from the 18th century until 1954, population always expressed strong Russian nationalism. So this scenario means that Ukrainian politics is heavily divided along the very same ethnic and linguistic divisions, not only are there significant internal divisions, but the country is caught between two regional giants, the West and Russia, vying for power and influence. Both have used historic, economic, political, and ideological means to try to secure their goals. The military alignments of Ukraine and the defensive alliances it seeks to join are crucial to understanding this complex scenario. In particular, the fragmented relationship between NATO, Russia and Ukraine has been a contentious subject, ultimately leading to the annexation of Crimea by Russia and the separatist rebellion in the Donbass region. In many respects, the portrayal of modern Ukraine and its current leadership by various aspects of the mainstream media as a fiercely independent defender of democratic values underscores the divided historical links of this fractious nation state. It also helps to explain why the constant reference to Ukraine's history is used as a bargaining chip by Western powers to promote the cause for Ukrainian independence. And this inevitably raises a key question. Why is the history of Ukraine so important? Ukraine as a nation and culture in its modern sense has only existed since the 19th century after the partition of Poland-Lithuania during the final decade of the 18th century. It built itself up in the Austrian-controlled regions of Galicia and Bukovina through direct encouragement from Emperor Joseph II of Austria, who permitted not only the teaching of Ukrainian in schools, but also for the native religion of the Ukrainians to be worshipped in their own language. The native religion referred to here is known as Ridnovira, a form of ancient pagan worship which predated Christianity. This led to a national renaissance among the Ukrainian minority in Austria and a declaration that all 15 million Ukrainians in both Galicia and Russia were of the same people with the same language. This idea of separate Ukrainian culture and language had always been there, but Ukrainians did not have a state of their own, nor a united political entity that was purely Ukrainian. However, the Ukrainian culture did not die out, nor did it lose its collective memory. And it's this memory which goes beyond diverse cultural factors such as religion and language, which is the most important factor in the Ukrainian cultural fabric today. It informs all decisions made by Ukraine's cultural leaders and by the people of Ukraine during times of crisis. 
This memory begins with the Kievan Rus and also the Cossack Hetmanate. So let's look at these two terms. Kievan Rus refers to the first East Slavic state reached a peak in the mid 11th century. Cossack Hetmanate refers to the deep divide in Ukrainian culture between Cossacks and dwellers, which still exist to this day. And this clear dichotomy has led to a cultural ascendancy of Ukraine within its own borders, as opposed to the Russian cultural triad, which refers to Tsar Nicholas I's triad of orthodoxy, autocracy and nationality. Moreover, many aspects of the aforementioned cultural ascendancy have been used ruthlessly by Ukraine's current leadership under President Volodymyr Zelensky as a bulwark to repel any form of outside occupation or to integrate Ukraine into the Russian sphere of influence. And to shed further light on this mindset of cultural ascendancy, it's necessary to examine the modern Ukraine crisis as a byproduct of two models, both in systemic crisis, which are firstly post-Soviet Ukrainian statehood, and second, the implications of a post-unipolar world, specifically I'm referring to the declining influence of the United States since the mid-2000s. And to do this, the remainder of the episode will focus on the underlying causes which have led to Ukraine falling into such a deep crisis. Clearly, Ukraine is beset by unique nationalist and cultural issues, which have been an open wound for Europe since the end of the Cold War. And this open wound has soured Russia's relations with its European partners, but it's equally important to remember that any attempt for a negotiated settlement in Ukraine in the near future must take account of the underlying factors which have led to this crisis, especially at this moment in time because the international system is in a high state of flux, transitioning from a unipolar to a multipolar system. And this is a point which I'll elaborate on later in the episode. And in the following sections, my aim will be to identify the various underlying causes to this crisis. So let's begin by examining the specific internal factors, in particular, the historical causes. The first historical cause is the notion of Ukraine as a failed state. The crisis that began in November 2013 indicates a collapse of the existing model of Ukrainian statehood. Quite simply, Ukraine had never existed in its present borders before it became part of the Soviet Union. Its current borders are the result of Soviet state building, which at the time did not take into account the historical and cultural details of its territories. Soviet powers based on purely pragmatic and sometimes openly manipulative considerations. As it merged geographical territories and drew up new internal borders, Also, during the Soviet era, the decision-making on borders had very little to do with common sense and were based not on the ideas of harmonious development or relations, but rather pursuing the active destruction of territorial communities that existed in the imperial Tsarist period. For example, Soviet authorities wanted to balance out the Ukrainian peasantry with the industrial workers from the Nova Russia, and this is a term which refers to a large swathe of territory conquered by Imperial Russia during the 18th century from the declining Ottoman Empire. The historic concept of Nova Russia covered roughly a third of what is now Ukraine, and it includes regions such as Kharkov, Lugansk, Donetsk, Kherson, Nikolaev, and Odessa. And to complete this process of balancing out, the Soviets merged the territories of what is now eastern and central Ukraine. Or conversely, they divided the territories of the the Great Don region in order to destroy the identity of the Cossacks by portraying them as an anti-Soviet class, thus handing over these lands to Ukraine. These border changes within the Soviet Union led to the artificial unification of highly disparate areas and ethnic groups under the broader name of Ukraine and Ukrainians. So this created a new Soviet identity for Ukraine, which had a unifying effect and steamrolled all internal differences. In addition, all potential internal problems were extinguished by an autocratic style of governance backed by a strong security and police apparatus of the Soviet state. 
And following the demise of the Soviet Union and the subsequent petering out of the Soviet identity, all suppressed internal disagreements and the historical segmentation of Ukrainian society simply rose to the surface and clearly did not fit into the parameters of a newly independent Ukraine. So from this point of view, the sovereign Ukrainian state does not have its own authentic history and its status as a young, inexperienced state is compounded by its lack of historical context. Furthermore, any attempts to date Ukrainian statehood back to Kievan Rus would be unfeasible and represent historical falsification. And so the truth is that prior to 1992, there was no fully-fledged sovereign Ukrainian state under any form of international borders. In 1992, Ukraine received its independence not as a result of its nationwide fight for independence, but as a result of a power struggle that took place primarily in Moscow among Soviet leaders. Quite simply, Kiev, similar to almost all other post-Soviet capital cities, received independence from the hands of the dying Soviet regime. Furthermore, for the majority of Ukraine's population, it largely came as a total surprise, not as the result of years or even centuries of a fight for independence, as was the case with Poland and Hungary. And this is such an important point to understand, and it's said not with the intention of decrying the national sentiment of modern-day Ukraine's population, but in order to emphasize a key point behind the weakness of current Ukrainian statehood and also the incompetence of its political elite. There has never been a sustained historical development of the Ukrainian people as a nation-state. Indeed, a vast proportion of its people did not want this independence at all. A unified Ukrainian nation as a political entity has yet to take shape. And so let's move to the second historical cause, which is the issue of a governing elite. The advent of a national elite has also never occurred in Ukraine either. The elite of Soviet Ukraine was unprepared for independence and equally were unsure what to do with it. One way or another, most of these people felt that they were part of a major Soviet and Russian historical project and therefore were not ready for a harmonious understanding of Ukraine's national interests as a sovereign state. A small proportion of the Ukrainian elite, mostly intellectuals with anti-Soviet views, were mainly confined to a narrow concept of Soviet descent based on ultra-nationalist ideas, meaning that they were not ready to pursue a strategic nation-building effort. And so in the early stages of the country's development, Ukrainian elite included representatives at various levels, such as economic, military defense and security, law enforcement, and various intellectual groups. Public servants in the government were people that had risen from being owners of shadowy production facilities in the Soviet Union to become entrepreneurs and businessmen. However, over time, things took a turn for the worse as the original post-Soviet army began to disintegrate, which meant that the political establishment lost support from representatives of the military elite. And gradually, units from the special services and law enforcement agencies were being transformed into corporate entities, and as such, they ceased to be independent and serve the interests of major economic players who began placing them on their private payrolls. As a result of this, Ukraine's ruling elite became fragmented, and the country was being ruled by three distinct groups of the economic elite. They included financial intermediaries, bankers, and the manufacturing or merchant class. So this meant that Ukrainian oligarchs and other high-level economic representatives differed vastly in their approach to accumulating capital wealth. For instance, businessmen in the Donetsk region have always gravitated towards manufacturing, whereas Dnipro businessmen have aligned themselves to financial mediation. And lastly, Kiev and Western Ukraine businessmen have traditionally pursued banking interests. And so for all intents and purposes, this competition would not have been considered a destructive process had the intellectual elite also been present throughout these events, because they were the only group capable of guiding strategic projects and long-term constructive national plans. In addition, the military and law enforcement elite, which could rein in the capitalist ambitions of the oligarchs and redirect their energy towards benefiting the state, were also not present. The Ukraine example clearly demonstrates that an economic elite which has reached the seat of power unopposed is 
unable to create the foundations for a sustainable, balanced economy. It lacks the vision of the intellectual class and the strict discipline of the security elite to control complex economic systems and public institutions. And so the Ukrainian events of 2013 to 14 began as a well-intentioned political goal from one group of economic elites, but eventually pitted all aspects of society against each other, resulting in bloodshed and death on the streets of Ukraine. So let's move to the third historical cause, which is the idea of nationalism. In theory, it's conceivable that the various internal conflicts and issues could have been avoided by advocating a unifying national cause or civic idea that was unrelated to ethnic identity or an ethnocentric interpretation of history. Unfortunately, over the past two to three decades, no one in Ukraine has been interested in promoting a unifying raison d'etre for the country or its citizens. Indeed, to take this argument further, not a single Ukrainian leader realized that an infant state without a unified approach to reform and modernization is doomed to exist in social and political wilderness. From the very start, official Kiev policy was to opt for a nationalistic idea in its most fatal and destructive form. And when Ukraine became independent, there was no concept of shared ideology that would run parallel with the independent parameters of statehood. Only nationalist groups during the period of Gorbachev's perestroika had a vague sense of ideology that would fill the vacuum. Consequently, these groups relied upon to shape ideology for national development, especially given that Ukrainian Politicians at the time were more interested in finding any method of distancing Ukraine from Russia. Ukrainian nationalism with its new slogan, Ukraine is not Russia, suited this purpose perfectly. However, this ideology was fundamentally flawed because the sovereign Ukrainian state did not possess an authentic history. And the ideas being promoted were too simplistic for harmonious national development. These ideas were based on stoking past historical grievances and a denial of the past manifested as extreme nationalistic fervor. And its worst feature was the complete lack of moral and ethical principles. This approach engendered an extreme historical and moral revisionism that justified any crime from the past or present, especially if that crime benefited the new Ukrainian nation. This type of ideology was bound to drift from state nationalism to overt neo-fascist tendencies. Far from offering a long-term solution, it exploited domestic partitions by dividing the nation into real and not real Ukrainians to say nothing of its attitude to Russians and other ethnicities. This ideology de deliberately drove a wedge between Ukraine and Russia and vice versa. Also from a cultural perspective, it encouraged large-scale falsifications, distortions and aggression against those who did not accept these views. Examples include forced Ukrainianization of the regions with predominant Russian-speaking population. And so this ideology developed relentlessly under President Viktor Yushchenko after the 2004 Orange Revolution, and it produced staunch arguments. First, Russia is Ukraine's number one enemy in the past, present and future, despite being a bordering neighbor state and, a, and the largest economic partner. Second, to glorify Ukraine's past as a Nazi Germany collaborator via the wartime organization of Ukrainian nationalists, the OUN, and by expressing this form of ultranationalism as representative of all genuine Ukrainians. Furthermore, anyone rebelling against this brand of ultranationalism would be treated as traitors or suppressed and marginalized. Effectively, Ukraine was tacitly divided into first and second class citizens and regions. For instance, regions in the industrial east and south, such as the Donbass, that largely kept Ukraine's economy afloat, were classified as second-rate due to their historical links with Russia. And after a certain point, it was impossible to conceal this discrepancy, and it eventually became the source for gradual es escalation of social tensions. This fatalistic and destructive concept was a sure road to disaster in domestic and foreign policy pursuits, and was bound to trigger a crisis sooner or later, clearly indicating that the model of modern Ukrainian statehood was conceptually weak and untenable. As a result, Ukraine as a nation state has lost its moral bearings 
in a maze of historical revisionism and explains why some elements of Ukrainian society have neo-Nazi beliefs while others still wish to return to Russia and others are lost in Euro-Atlantic dreams. And in the years since its independence, Ukraine has failed to formulate a common national idea that would be equally understood and accepted in the West and East of the country. In the post-Soviet period, it existed as a state with two identities similar to Belgium or Canada, where there are the two ethnicities and two languages with different cultures and faiths. So let's look at the fourth historical cause, which is the issue of oligarchs. The oligarchs represent yet another trauma of the new Ukrainian statehood due to its infancy, weak historical roots and poorly conceived national ideology. Since the early days of post-Soviet independence, the Ukrainian state has been run by a small number of financial and industrial groups or FIGs. Certain individuals exploited the weak state structure by ruthlessly promoting their own business projects based on a fragmented system of Soviet inherited state property. The new ruling class seized the reins of capital power by purchasing undervalued business assets and dissolving Soviet inherited property. The FIGs established a system of relations where corruption became a decisive factor in state and civil governance, fundamentally changing the way of life for the entire country. As a result, public policy became a sham because it was reduced to rival competition between the FIGs and their complex behind-the-scenes business developments. Ukraine's national policy was therefore subordinated to the narrow private interests of the various FIGs. The economic system was becoming increasingly corrupt and reckless, undermining pe people's trust in the authorities and the foundations of the political process. And in the meantime, the core of this corrupt political system remained the same regardless of the change of presidents. On the surface, Ukrainian presidents may have had different political and social views, but in reality, the true nature of the differences simply bore down to the division of property between their affiliated FIGs. And so Ukraine has never been a true democracy in its entire post-Soviet history, although it was often presented as such. And it has always been a classic oligarchy with all the trappings of excessive corruption and cronyism. So having explored the underlying internal causes behind the current Ukraine crisis, let's now turn our attention to key domestic and foreign developments which set the stage for the crisis to ignite in November 2013 by focusing on four main developments. And they are political and economic causes, the role of external actors, and the role played by Russia, the EU and NATO. Let's begin with political causes and the capitulation of President Viktor Yanukovych. The November 2013 decision led to mass protests in central Kiev, which then turned into a permanent standoff in the capital's independent square. Most protesters were ordinary people suffering from entrenched poverty and were deeply incensed by the scale of official corruption, which even extended to Yanukovych's family. To these people, the EU association appeared as a way out of this undignified situation. And the abrupt and unexpected closure of that door by Yanukovych's rejection of the EU proposal produced a painful and powerful shock. This unparalleled civic protest, which be became known as the Maidan, was joined by nationalistic groups hailing mainly from Western Ukraine, who insisted on a Ukrainian national identity that was separate from and even hostile to Russia. To them, Yanukovych and Eastner was hijacking the country to merge with Russia, which many in the country's West viewed with deep suspicion and outright hostility. In addition, the, the Maidan protests were funded and exploited by Ukraine's oligarchic clans. They were unhappy with Yanukovych and his Donets allies wielding too much power and aggressively expanding their business interests at the expense of other oligarchs. To them, the Maidan was a means to force early presidential elections and unseat Viktor Yanukovych. And so in mid-February 2014, the situation in central Kiev degenerated into violence and reached a final outcome. It first appeared that Yanukovych would win by using force to disperse the Maidan, which by that time had formed a sizable fighting force built around a nationalist 
organization called the Right Sector. However, Yanukovych stopped the police advance in its tracks and opened talks with the opposition leaders. Those talks soon became negotiated concessions on behalf of his government, culminating with the president's de facto capitulation on February 21, 2014. And the foreign ministers of EU member states from France, Germany and Poland co-signed an agreement with the Ukrainian government and opposition leaders to that effect. No sooner had it been signed, the deal was rejected by the Maidan, whose more radical members demanded the president's immediate resignation. Yanukovych fled from Kiev, the police disappeared from its streets, and the Maidan revolution claimed a major victory. And in the next section, I will be examining the role of external actors. So let's begin with the United States. The top echelons of the US administration, including President Barack Obama, were not initially focused on the Ukrainian development. Ukraine was not a foreign policy priority for President Obama, who was heavily preoccupied with wars in the Middle East, Iran's nuclear program and military withdrawal from Afghanistan. However, the United States had long supported pro-Western democratic movements in Ukraine for both ideological and geopolitical reasons. Washington was vehemently opposed to the idea of Ukraine becoming part of the Russian sphere of influence. And so to prevent this, the US was working on helping pro-Western opposition leaders gain power in Kiev during the Maidan revolution and openly encourage their efforts to do so. A key point to note here is the role that the US administration played in regime change during the Maidan protests of 2014. For instance, US Under Secretary of State Victoria Nuland is believed to have played a significant role in the 2014 Maidan events by actively encouraging the protests of nationalist and neo-Nazi groups against the government of then President Viktor Yanukovych. At the time, Yanukovych was representing the Party of Regions, which was opposed to the assimilation of Ukraine by the EU and NATO. In addition, Newland was a keen advocate of the subsequent soft coup, referring to the choice of new political leaders for Ukraine. However, she certainly exceeded her powers by personally participating in the demonstrations that the extreme right stage in Kiev's Maidan Square at the end of December 2013. Also well documented are leaked audio recordings of her conversation with then US ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Payat, which indicates that the US was directly involved in the 2014 revolution. After the parliamentary removal of the Yanukovych government on February 22, 2014, the highly publicized US intervention in the internal affairs of Ukraine became even more visible. Despite assurances from Washington that the problems of Ukraine should be resolved by its own citizens, Newland and Jeffrey Payat were in charge of selecting who among the opposition leaders should take the reins of the government. The American option fell on Arseny Petrovich Yatsenok, a lawyer and politician closely linked to the banks, who was appointed Prime Minister of Ukraine on February 27, 2014. And in a telephone conversation between Pyatt and Newland, Ambassador Pyatt suggested that before making the proposal in favour of Yatsenok, it would be advisable to consult with the European Union. Newland famously replied to this request by saying, F the EU. Let's now turn to the role played by the issue of NATO's eastward expansion. The actual and planned eastward expansion of NATO towards Russia's borders can be examined from two viewpoints, as either a cause of the Ukraine crisis or as a solution to prevent the crisis. The heated debate between these two ideologies is evident in the case of NATO's eastward expansion. NATO was originally designed to curb the Soviet threat and protect Western Europe from communist expansion. And when the Cold War ended and NATO's original mandate had therefore expired, liberals championed the continued existence and expansion of the organization. Realists, on the other hand, warned of negative repercussions as they foresaw that eastward expansion of the alliance would be perceived as a threat by Russia. In order to determine which view, liberal or realist, is more appropriate or correct, and what action should be taken to maintain peace and stability in the region between the West and Russia, several factors must be considered. First, the motivation behind Russia's actions is important to try and determine what its intentions and capabilities are in relation to Ukraine. 
and the rest of Russia's sphere of influence. Secondly, one must outline the risk factors which will possibly provoke further Russian hostilities. Only then is it possible to determine whether NATO expansion is perceived to be aggressive or alternatively whether Russian retaliation on its own borders will be perceived as aggressive. And so in the current war of 2022, the Kremlin does not appear to have plans, desires, or most importantly, the capacity to invade or occupy all of Ukraine at this point. The examples of Georgia in 2008 and Ukraine in 2014 serve as a good indicator of this. Russia did not pursue an end goal of occupying the entirety of both of these countries, as some Western commentators have suggested. Also of key importance in these cases are the domestic separatist elements to which the conflicts have been largely confined. Russia's annexation of Crimea was largely a strategic move, but with deep historical and cultural ties, which are often neglected, but play a major role in understanding Russian foreign policy. So let's now turn to the role played by the EU and NATO. The Ukraine crisis was preceded by intense competition between the EU and Russia for the future geo-economic orientation of Ukraine. And this was a long-standing issue dating back to the August 2008 war between Russia and Georgia, which effectively ended the proposition of enlarging NATO to include both Georgia and Ukraine. In addition, the EU's proposal for membership seems to have gathered momentum and credibility during the start of the global financial crisis around August, September 2008, because of the dire need for regional economic assistance. Inevitably, though, the EU and Russia drew different conclusions from the Georgian war and the financial crisis. The EU launched its Eastern Partnership Programme in 2009 in the hope of including Ukraine economically and politically, along with five other former Soviet republics. But rather than a simple step towards EU enlargement, this initiative was an attempt to create a zone of comfort to the East of the EU's border and enhance those countries' Western orientation. The Russian Federation, for its part, tried to attract Ukraine and most of the other former Soviet Union states to its flagship project of a customs union, also promoted in 2009. And by May 2014, this led to the signing of the treaty establishing a Eurasian Economic Union. But rather than recreating the Soviet Union, as suggested by many Western commentators, Moscow began building a Russian-led community in Eurasia that would give Russia certain economic benefits and a better bargaining position with regard to its largest continental neighbours, the EU to the West and China to the East. Once Ukraine was included into the scheme, which President Putin had been trying to achieve since the 03-04 project of a single economic space, the aim was to achieve an economic entity with a potential consumer base of 200 million customers. While at the same time, President Putin remained committed to his vision of a greater Europe from Lisbon to Vladivostok, which he first outlined in 2010. And so Brussels and Moscow each saw Ukraine as an integral part of their own geopolitical project. Of particular note, and something which is rarely reported, is the fact that the Russians made a concerted effort to explore the possibility of linking Ukraine with both economic entities and this way preserve the country's international and domestic balance. Yet for the Europeans, there was no chance of talking to a third country about Ukraine's association. And eventually both Russia and EU came to see Ukraine's choice as nothing more than a zero-sum game and worked even harder to influence the eventual outcome. For Ukraine's part, then-President Viktor Yanukovych and his supporters from the eastern region of Donetsk were constantly shuttling between the EU and Russia in the hope of reaching a more optimal deal. Yanukovych, for obvious domestic political reasons, raised the hopes of the Ukrainian population in achieving the EU option on which he was ostensibly working. But the Ukraine president was unable to secure substantial financial relief from Brussels to compensate for the impact on Ukrainian industry as a result of closer economic ties with the EU, especially in terms of structural adjustments to the national economy and the imposition of sizable IMF loans. 
And in the run-up to presidential elections originally scheduled for 2015, the need for such a cushion became crucial as an olive branch towards the domestic electorate. And at the same time, Yanukovych had to factor in the pressure exerted by Russia. Moscow outlined a range of trade barriers which would be imposed on Ukraine if the latter chose the EU over Russia. Similarly, the Russians also offered an aid package to Ukraine as a way of sweetening the deal if Yanukovych gave the nod to Moscow. And so Yanukovych in November 2013 suddenly suspended a political and economic association agreement that Kiev had been due to sign with the EU the following month, and he instead accepted a generous financial and economic package of $15 billion from Russia. So now that we have a better understanding of the underlying causes of the current Ukraine crisis, we can now ask, where does Ukraine go from here? The sequence of events in Ukraine from the political crisis in 2014 to the recent invasion of February 2022 has effectively ended Russian-Western relations for the foreseeable future, given the tough economic sanctions imposed on Russia by the United States and its Western allies. Indeed, the war in Ukraine has opened the doors to a new period of heightened rivalry, with the added prospect of a potential nuclear confrontation between the former Cold War adversaries. And this is especially in light of the fact that a war that many academic scholars have argued could drag on for years to come. Indeed, many scholars even point to an era of unprecedented hostility broadly reminiscent of the Cold War period. But it also differs from that particular era in many important ways. The situation brought about by the present war has a global dimension to it, which is not focused purely on ideology, as was the case with the Cold War conflict. In other words, at that time it was between communism and liberal democracy. Instead, at the moment it represents an epoch-making shift in global power, a dimensional shift of power from the Western Hemisphere to the Eastern Hemisphere. More importantly, unlike the first Cold War where a common hallmark was the practice of brinkmanship, the current war in Ukraine is not guided by the organizing principle of hegemony anymore. This is because the die has already been cast in a much greater game for supremacy through regional alliances. Indeed, it is Eurasia which is now emerging as the dominant force in world politics in the decades ahead. If historical analogies serve any purpose at this point, parallels can be drawn to the period of the post-war period where the United States emerged as the dominant world superpower due to its economic and military strength. The old world empires, which were dominant during the 19th century, such as the British, Russian and Japanese empires, were effectively obsolete. Similarly, the shining star of the United States, which has maintained world dominance for roughly 80 years, is now beginning to fade because the axis for greater game supremacy is now shifting towards China and its eastern allies. This new form of supremacy is fundamentally based on economic power rather than military power. And this is a point which I will expand on in the next section by addressing the question, what are the implications of the Ukraine crisis? The first area to focus on is the, the wider geopolitical context. From Moscow's point of view, the unipolar New World Order ushered in by former US President George H.W. Bush in the Gulf War of 1990 to 1991 lasted roughly until the mid-2000s. And this is because neither of the subsequent wars, Iraq 2003 and Afghanistan 2001, led to a strengthening of the US global position. And it's fair to say that soon afterwards, US global hegemony began to falter and wane. Moreover, the financial crisis of 2008-09 effectively drew a line under the brief period of unchallenged US world supremacy after the end of the Cold War and the demise of the Soviet Union. At the same time, the Russians also witnessed the EU enter its most serious crisis since its foundation. During this crisis, the EU was forced to deal with a crisis in confidence, debt and financing issues, an absence of pivotal leadership and an overstretch in membership expansion. These developments allowed Moscow to conclude that from the late 20th century, and in particular since the beginning of the 21st century, the global balance 
had begun to shift in favour of non-Western aligned countries, mainly in the global south, such as China, India, Brazil, Turkey, Singapore, Indonesia, whose collective economies have experienced strong transformative growth. In addition, there are several other emerging market economies following them too. Most of these countries avoid direct confrontation with the United States, but simultaneously also wish to see a rebalancing of the global order away from the dominant Western powers. Both the Ukraine crisis of 2014 and the current war in 2022 have led Russia to openly challenge the post-Cold War consensus and indeed the post-Soviet settlement in Europe, which President Putin has now openly come to reject. For instance, Russia has already changed its international borders by incorporating Crimea following a referendum held on March the 16th, 2014. With Crimea back in its hands, Russia has also taken a big step towards restoring its strategic dominance in the Black Sea area. Furthermore, President Putin has publicly ad adopted a call to unity among a divided Russian people, which has sent a strong signal to regions with significant ethnic Russian or Russophone populations. Russia has invaded Ukraine partly on the basis of a rallying cry to protect the autonomy of the Russian-speaking Donetsk and Lugansk regions, while refusing to recognize the constitution and authorities in Kiev. And these events imply that the post-Cold War status quo in Eastern Europe, and to some extent in Europe, is a forgotten entity of the past. Russia is now fully focused on post-Soviet integration in Eurasia and is increasingly shifting its attention further eastward towards a dominant China and other rising states in Asia. When set against the background of mounting tension in Eastern Europe, the South China Seas and between Beijing and Washington, as well as the established presence of more nationalist governments in Japan and India, for instance, a revisionist, resurgent Russia may not be an outlier anymore, but part of an emerging trend of greater power competition succeeding the post-Cold War period of US-dominated world orders. And finally, as the war in Ukraine intensifies, the Russian authorities have vowed to prevent Ukraine from being hijacked from its natural place in the Russian sphere of influence and turned into a Western-dominated backyard of the EU and NATO. Ukraine is likely to be unstable for a very long time because of the violence and wholesale destruction taking place and unprecedented refugee crisis, no possibility in sight for a long-term negotiated settlement, and even the prospect of an ongoing regional insurgency involving conventional guerrilla warfare similar to what we saw in Honduras and Nicaragua in the 1980s. Even if this last extreme scenario is prevented, the sheer amount of social upheaval and long-term destruction to the Ukrainian economy would be difficult to avoid. And this could lead to one of the following three potential outcomes. First, a unified country minus Crimea, which will certainly stay within Russia, heavily supported and leaning towards the West. Second, a loose federal state with a neutral status between the West and Russia. And thirdly, a partition of the country in two or possibly several units, each of which will lean towards either the EU or Russia. The first outcome will certainly be favored by the Western powers, the second outcome by Russia, and the third outcome by neither, because it would probably lead to a full-scale prolonged civil war, which still cannot be ruled out. And each of these outcomes would significantly change the geopolitical balance in Eastern Europe. But amid this discussion of chilling eventualities, one thing is clear, however. A post-Soviet Ukraine based on the borders of 2014 will almost certainly be a relic of the past. And that's all we have time for in today's episode. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada. I really appreciate your company today. And as always, I'll see you next time. Wednesdays, 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.